Good morning, church. It is good to be with you guys this morning as we continue our study in the book of 1 John. Joe, thank you for reading. Who's excited today to talk about heresy? Oh, all right, just Mike. That's fine. You're probably not, and while I promise I cannot, or I promise that I will not necessarily make it fun, I think it's a topic that is very, very important to our spiritual welfare. Because often we don't see the subtle spiritual warfare that heresy is and breeds, unfortunately. <sighs> Today we are going to walk through Scripture. We're going to walk through 1 John. We're going to study the book, uh, the Bible, uh, as we always do, where we tend to go book by book, chapter by chapter, passage by passage, and often verse by verse. And we're going to cover what John was intending for his audience to understand, we hope. And in this very short passage that was just read, it is a warning and explanation of those who are heretical. Fun, right? Well, let's see what God does. But before we read, and we're going to start in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 8, I got to tell you about a conversation that I had not too long ago uh, because it applied to this passage and I kind of kept it to myself until today. I sat down with a friend of mine that I had had for many years. He's a good friend. And he had decided to turn away from Christianity. He decided that based on what he had experienced and the questions that he had and the lack of answers he was getting, that Christianity was no longer jiving with what he believed. And it definitely didn't fit into the way that he wanted to live his life. Some context of my, fr my friend, he grew up in a Christian home. He attended a Christian school growing up went directly to Bible college, did not collect $200, then ended up in cemetery, semi, seminary, and after getting his Master's of Divinity from a seminary, he became a pastor. Scandalous, right? He sat in the same lead pastor chair that I sat in. He did this for many years before I did. After a pedigree of schooling that had taught him everything you could ask and know about how to become the title of a pastor in a church. And this man, who I love dearly, in his later years, which we all assume are the more mature years, decided that all that he had learned and studied and experienced was not really anything more than a placebo version of hope that, he really, didn't, that really didn't do anything for him, other than giving him some purpose and a fairly good living to support his family. Well, he and I had a sit down, or to be fair, we were driving somewhere, but we were sitting because we don't drive standing up. And he began to ask me some questions about the faith. Now, for the podcast, I'm using quotes, the faith. And when I say the faith, what I want to communicate is that the faith is really just a way of saying orthodoxy, meaning it is what is generally accepted over centuries regarding the interpretation of the Bible and what the Bible implies regarding theology, what we know about God. Now, this guy has learned and been taught what most of any of us know, if not more, but as we talked, without even asking, he made clear what his problem was with the faith. And while I'll share what it is, I also want to point out that what I observed from his objections and his context were things that I actually knew pretty well because I grew up not believing as well. Much of what he had been fed and believed wasn't just professors telling him what to believe to get a decent grade, 
but he was also in a specific Christian denomination, and I'll reserve my judging of the denomination as a cult for another time, but he was in a denomination that saw the gospel as no more than an altar call that you tack on at the end of a sermon, and not something that informs everything that you believe. So the gospel was a means in which to be saved by agreeing with the idea of it rather than being transformed by it. And guilt and shame over your sin was more emphasized than the beauty of God offering you an identity in Christ that means you are no longer the sum of your sin, but the sum of Christ and his finished work. That's what we believe. So while I think that he really never was actually taught a biblical gospel, nor had he ever seen his sin as what separated him from God, Instead, he saw God like you would see a principal in school judging you based on what you do or don't do with no real means to be made right, with no real means to be made righteous because Jesus was just a person you believe in so you don't go to H-E double hockey sticks. That's hell for those of you who aren't tracking. Yet God is all-knowing and knows us better than we know ourselves and loves us in spite of our sin nature because Jesus took the punishment for our sin and proved that it was enough by rising from the dead. But here is where he and I diverted a ton in our beliefs as we were driving. He couldn't get past the idea that God would send, and I'd contend allow, but send people to hell. Now, I personally, instead of struggling with that anymore, I struggle daily with the reality that a perfect and holy and good God would want anything to do with me and allow any of us to have eternal life, to have heaven to be something that we look forward to. And so as we talked, I wrestled with the attempting to justify a God who doesn't need justification because none of us have any leg to stand on spiritually, yet instead of saying None of you are good enough, silly people. God gives the perfect solution to our sin problem, yet most of us don't think we need help or a Savior. So that is where we left it. Pride in oneself and a false gospel being presented over decades of study and grades that told him that he had figured out all that he needed to figure out about God. And it left him confused, cynical and disbelieving in God. And if I'm honest, the God that he doesn't believe in is ironically a similar God that I don't believe in. Now, that is not a confession of I'm no longer a believer. I am a believer because he did not believe in the God of the Word. He never believed in the God of the Word, but a God of a religious system that had misinterpreted his Word. And here we are today, studying a similar situation, heresy, which, as we will read, is when you miss the forest for the trees. So let's jump in. We'll get back to that story in a minute. Verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Now, as we studied last week, John again begins with this affectionate term, dear children, and he affectionately warns them and reminds them of the fact that they and we are in the last hour. 
the last days, known as the last times. And it is this specific time between the first coming of Christ, Jesus, when he came, born of a virgin, grew in stature, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, resurrected victoriously, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now we are waiting for the second coming. We are waiting. We are in the last days. And we wait and live expectantly that one day Jesus will come back. Have you thought about that today? Unless you read ahead, maybe you're like me, you probably weren't thinking, this could be the day Jesus comes back. And I say expectantly because ever since he ascended, I believe people have been spending more of their time attempting to crack some code of when he's coming back than living as if he's coming back. And we then miss the point entirely. Because we are not called to be the planning committee, we are called to be the welcoming committee. Acts 1, 6 through 7, we studied the book of Acts, it is right before a verse we're very uh, well versed in, but in verse 6, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, none of your business. No, he said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. So our living in the last days are super important, but we only believe that if we live as if Jesus could come back at any time with an urgency to bring him glory, or as he said in the very next verse that we are, again, well acquainted with, verse 8, but you will receive power when you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So you want to know if you believe if Jesus is coming back truly? Are you his witness? I'm not saying you run around trying to Jesus juke people. Hi, Jesus. No. But is the fact that relationship with him changes everything, something you believe and care enough to share with others. Back to verse 18 one more time. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Okay, so now we have gone from the last days, which I think many extremists have kind of uh, hijacked the meaning a little bit, and here we are in another word, landmine, that I also believe we have misunderstood and perhaps misidentified people by. John refers to the Antichrist, but he also says many Antichrists have come, and this was 2,000 years ago, and I believe the consistent teaching in church history is that there is an ultimate Antichrist that would appear at the end of the age. Paul speaks about it to the church in Thessalonica in his second letter. He says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So now we're all thinking about certain politicians, aren't we? So this Antichrist is coming, but there were many Antichrists who had already come and have been consistent throughout the ages. But look at the name. It's Antichrist. It's kind of self-explanatory. It's someone who is anti-Christ, anti-the Christ. It is in conflict with who we believe to be the Christ, which is Jesus. 
You want to know what the Antichrist believes? He lowers Jesus' supremacy from anything but the Christ. And as of what he had read up until these, or as what we had read up until these writings by John, those Antichrists, plural, had all come from outside the church. But these, the ones he's talking about right now, they came from inside the church. And look at how John explains it in verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So here's the conundrum. While it would be easy to say that maybe the church produced this, maybe the church wasn't good enough, maybe it wasn't catering to people's wants, I think it's more that God allowed this to take place. To allow those who are not interested in what is being proclaimed, the gospel, to actually allow themselves to eventually extradite themselves. Now, God allows for both those who understand the truth and those who oppose the truth to coincide within the same space, but only for a time, as eventually, if the church is who the church is supposed to be, those who oppose the truth will leave. Look at what most know as the wheat and the tares. But in the NIV, the translation calls it the wheat and the weeds. So we're going to be in Matthew 13 for a moment. Matthew 13, Jesus is telling a parable, trying to explain what the kingdom of God is like. And it says this, starting in verse 24, Jesus told them another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, did you, didn't you know sowing good seed? Or blah, blah, blah. Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. <laughs> now, I'm reading that parable and I'm thinking about, how are my kids hearing this parable? Does that make any sense to them? Maybe, maybe not. But Jesus actually points out how this is allowed and pretty consistent within the world and within the church of the living God. But perhaps we don't exactly understand what Jesus is implying. Well, what's great about this is Jesus expounds on this, and he explains what the parable means. So let's continue in Matthew 13, verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into his house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us that parable of the weeds in the field. It don't make no sense to us. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. That is Jesus. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into a burning, blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus says. 
God allows for both who understand the truth and those who oppose the truth to coincide within the same space, space, both in the world and even inside the church community, but only for a time. As eventually, if the church is who the church is supposed to be, those who oppose the truth will leave. Or, if I can be a bit more current about how churches tend to have worked for the many past years that I've experienced church ministry, a church decides, let's, let's be a little stereotypical, sometimes a church decides that numbers, how many people sitting in the pews or the chairs or views online, numbers and money are the main priority of the church. And so instead of sticking to a conviction of what the text says, what the truth is, the church gradually wanders towards preference rather than the redemptive work of Christ, the gospel. And those who have their preferences as their main priorities possibly become the ones that dictate the agenda of the community. Has anyone ever experienced this? But in the first century, in the church of Ephesus, John says, if they belonged to us, they would have stayed with us. In this context, when someone would leave the church, they didn't have 50 other churches to choose from within city limits. They had the one. Generally, and when you left, you left your community, and many believe that you left because you did not believe the message of the church. Now listen, this does not mean that anyone who leaves this church is the Antichrist, okay? Please, if that's your takeaway, no. Many leave because they've moved. I don't know if you guys know it, but it's kind of expensive to live here. Yeah. Some leave because of relationships, like someone gets married to someone who's a part of another church and they end up at that church. Some leave because of preference. And while all of that is circumstantial, some do leave because they do not agree with the message that is being proclaimed. Let's not get it twisted. That also happens. And what message do we proclaim? Well, I, as the pastor, as the lead pastor of this church, I want to make it very clear what we're about here. So if you're trying to find something else, uh, I'd encourage you to try to find that. But this is what we're about. This is where we put our flag. This is what we believe. I can confidently say that the main thing that we teach, the main thing that we preach, the main thing that we talk about and worship God because of is the redemptive work of Christ on behalf of sinners who are unable to save themselves. That's our gospel. It's not tacked on at the end of a sermon. It's how we read the scriptures. We believe that this message, that Jesus came and did what we were unable to do for ourselves and did it on our behalf, is the only way we have access to God. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. And it is that gospel that informs what we do and why we do it. And while we can probably, anyone who attends or visits or, you know, claims that they're a Christian, we can all agree on the periphery, like, we should be kind. Well, no kidding. We can agree that we should serve and we should care for other people. Well, no kidding. But motivation and reason behind those actions matter. And for the person who I believe understands the gospel, when we serve, when we care for others, it must be because Christ crucified and resurrected is the reason that we can serve God in the first place. Otherwise, we're religious humanitarians, and Christ's sacrifice and resurrection would be in vain. 
But God in his mercy, God in his grace, God in his wisdom and will decides to allow both the wheat and the weeds to coexist together, often in the church, often in Bible studies, often in worship services, often in community groups. And I say that so not so each of you will look cynically at each person and be like, well, maybe they're not in. It's not about that. But those outside of the church, those who want nothing to do with attending a church, want nothing to do with other Christians, they kind of show their motivation. But the reality is that, unfortunately, sometimes in the church, we kind of show our motivation too. It's more about our preference. It's more about uh, convenience rather than commitment to Christ. So we don't do what we do to justify ourselves. None of you are getting another level of heaven because you came here on a Sunday when the Niners were playing. You just need to know that. And a lot, a lot of times, at least I know this about a lot of my religious friends, they attend their church because they feel bad about the stuff they did throughout the rest of the week, and so they come to give God some time. That's not gospel thinking, church. And really, John states the obvious in this verse. Those who did leave, in the context he was writing, left because ultimately they were not part of the church. It wasn't just that their preference wasn't being catered to, it was that the truth of the gospel message was offensive to them. No one gets adopted by God through finding ways to be a good person. That should have been a slide. Let me say that again. No one gets adopted by God through, through finding ways to be a good person. Our adoption into the family of God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Which is not believing Christian things, like being kind or caring for your neighbor. Those things happen as a byproduct of faith in Jesus. We are adopted by looking to the one who sacrificed himself in our place and seeing him as our only means of salvation. So those John were talking about who left because they were not part of us was because they found their justification in themselves rather than in Christ. And all of this passage points to the real struggle. The struggle is real that we have in and outside of the church. People rarely hear the truth of the gospel. Did you know that? Even in the preaching today in churches all across the world because people are too overstimulated by counterfeit gospels that they ultimately reject and in turn think they have tried Christianity but it just didn't work for them. But really all they experienced was a phony knockoff that I too would reject if that's all I ever heard about. Look at how Pastor Ray Steadman puts it. It was in a sermon about 50 years ago. He says this about this passage. I thought this was brilliant. John begins this theme in chapter 2, verse 18, on a rather negative note. Heresy. He talks about heresies, about perversions of the truth, about distortions and counterfeits that will exist from time to time in cycles throughout history. He went on to give us certain general characteristics of these heretical ideas, these anti-Christian doctrines, which come disguised as Christianity, but which are often widespread caricatures of Christianity, which most people hearing reject and therefore think they have rejected the real thing. 
man, how many times have I been talking with someone who has claimed that they were a Christian, and then I asked them about what they believed, and it didn't sound anything like what we try to communicate to one another here. Think about that for a second. Have you ever talked with someone who had said no to Jesus, had said, oh, I tried it, or I was a Christian, I stepped away from it? Have you ever talked to someone who used to be a Christian, who turned down Jesus' offer of salvation, who could competently explain what the invitation really was, biblically. Like, imagine someone saying, I reject that whole grace thing. I don't want anything to do with a free gift. I want to earn it because I know how good I am internally and how all my thoughts and all my actions are so taken captive by how good I am, and when no one is looking, I am so pure and so commendable, and God dying in my place, totally unnecessary, because I'm great. No one's going to say that. But unfortunately, we kind of act like that sometimes. Quick side note, regarding the story I told you about my buddy who went from pastor to rejecter of the faith, the thing that I think blew his mind As we were talking, and as I was driving faster and faster, and was like, so what's going to happen to you when you die? No, I didn't do that, but I wanted to. (laughs) The thing that I think blew his mind and made him think more than anything was when I said that I think the faith he doesn't believe in is a different faith than the one that I have. And then I said this, that in 20 years of ministry, I've I've been a believer for over 20 years, I've been in ministry for about 20 years. I've had to defend my belief of the gospel, that it is Jesus' work, not mine. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. I've had to defend this with people who claim they're Christians, that in the 20 years that I have had to defend the gospel over and over against Christians, not once have any of them ever brought up or used scripture to defend what they disagree with. Not once. Not one time. Rather, they have used culture, opinion, preference, assumptions, feelings, and what they heard someone else say on a podcast or on YouTube, and yet the truth of the word, this book, church, was not something they wanted to discuss. But if we're going to speak about God, shouldn't we quote what God says about himself found in the truth of Scripture? Like, I don't come up with my thoughts based on God from a dream I had or through an assumption about how things work. Shouldn't believers allow the Scripture to speak for itself? Now, while I don't think we should worship the Bible, okay, I really don't. Or really, when someone is kind of worshiping the Bible, they're really just worshiping themselves because of all the Bible they've memorized and can regurgitate. If Jesus rose from the dead and is If Jesus actually rose from the dead, if you actually believe that, then this is actually God's word. Expressing his will written in book form so we could know God. So let's go back to the source. Rather than some subjective argument that people tend to use to expose their misunderstanding of who God is. So John knowing that some would out themselves and disassociate themselves from not only the truth of the gospel, but the emphasis of the gospel, points to what the audience of this letter really needed to be affirmed by. Verse 20, but you believers, 
You have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. This admission to the church of the living God in this case, in the city of Ephesus, John tells them that they have an anointing. Who's thinking about oils right now? Okay. And that they know the truth. And while it would be easy to focus on the anointing as more important than knowing the truth or knowing the truth as more important than the anointing, I believe these things go hand in hand for God's people. Let me define some stuff. The anointing is the Holy Spirit. It is the third person of the Trinity residing in the believer, which is the way in which we enter into eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We too, as adopted children of God, are included in Christ, and that is good news. And this anointing from God to us in God the Spirit means we are never without God, never without the ability to trust God, never without the truth of God being what we can lean into and what we can obey. An anointing is also a fancy way for saying appointment. We are appointed to the office of child of God. We are a servant of God. We are a friend of God. We are God's people collectively, not independently, but we are together the bride of Christ. And we, as the church who believe, are anointed. We are given purpose. And you know what that purpose is? You ready? It's to glorify God. That is your purpose. If you've ever wondered what you're supposed to do in this Christian life, I'd contend maybe you've forgotten the amazing truth of being anointed because the Holy Spirit indwells in you and the Holy Spirit indwells in you so you can glorify God. You can display the power and the mercy and the grace of a resurrected Christ. But also, when it comes to being anointed, I do have to point out something because when I study scripture, I always look at different translations in the King James Version, the verse says that those anointed, or the word is unction, anyone use that word this week? Unction. Unction. It says that those with unction know all things, which is not what John, I believe, is implying. We do not know all things, nor are we gods, but we do know the truth. Guess who the truth is? Jesus, the Holy One. And it is through him, the truth, Jesus Christ, that we find our appointment to God's family in his service and for his glory. Verse 21, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie comes from the truth. <laughs> uh, I had a long conversation about this passage with Malik and with Laura this week. One of the hard things about writing a sermon for a passage like this is to remember the intent and the purpose of the writing. Uh, just confession, I'm kind of negative by nature, unfortunately. I read something like this passage and I can focus way too much on the negative and miss the point of the letter, the chapter, and the passage. At the beginning of 1 John, John says this, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. 
All of this is to point out, do not believe a false gospel because you will not have fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You will miss out on what it truly means to have a relationship with God because you're believing and listening to and following a false gospel. And John's writings were, str- this, were strengthening to the believer based on what John had seen and heard, and they could have both fellowship with him, another believer, and with God. And in that relationship around the truth of who God is, our joy could be made complete. Now, this audience that John is writing to in Ephesus does know the truth, and while many had to go because they know or didn't know or accept the truth, John is encouraging the believers who do know the truth in spite of others who refuse it. Have you ever been around someone like maybe my friend who I was a dear friend with, I had prayed with many times, we had done so much life together, and now he's rejecting anything to do with Jesus, and I'm sitting here going, well, am I the dumb one? Am I the one that's wrong? And in the truth, John says, there is no lie. For the believer who focuses on Jesus and his finished work, our conscience can be clear that we have believed in the truth no matter how others respond to the same truth. Verse 22, who is the liar? Who's the antichrist? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. And here John finally, and he's going to do it throughout this letter, but finally says, what's the false teaching? What's the thing that he has to contend against as he writes this letter? And it was those who left and believed and proclaimed to others that Jesus was not the Christ. Such a person is the Antichrist. And later on in 1 John, he'll point out what the spirit of the Antichrist is, which is to deny Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as hope. And Antichrist, while it is often used to scare people, and many call people that they don't like Antichrist, like the, yeah, never mind, I'm not going there. They're missing the point of what someone who is the Antichrist does. They lower Jesus' supremacy. So if Jesus is only a good teacher to you, if Jesus is only a good man or you think Jesus was a good prophet and a religious entity, but you do not see him as the Christ, that is the teaching of the Antichrist which you have believed. And this is the heresy that the early church in Ephesus had, and it continues in so many different shapes today. Religion after religion, cult after cult, and honestly, some denomination after denomination, even within Christendom, have differing views of Jesus' impact, his importance, and his deity. And I know, okay, and, and I said at the beginning, before the sermon started, I said at the beginning of the service that some of this is a little personal. This passage was a little hard for me to study through. I know that the past few years have been hard as a community here in this place. The pandemics and the politics that went with it, the sicknesses, the isolation, the polarization of our country, our state, our region, and our area, and how each responded generally differently, everyone had been affected by what had gone on in and outside of the church. And in that time period, our family, we added an addition to our already large family in our cute little Finley, and I don't have a picture, but that would have made sense. We, by God's grace, the Riley family, purchased a home in the Bay Area. That still doesn't make sense to me. And we grew closer as a family, 
while also losing a wonderful friend and uncle in that time of isolation. We saw people move on from COV because of how we handled the pandemic. We saw people move on because of changes in employment for some. We saw relationships be broken because of changes that had happened in the church. It was hard. And while there are triggers and moments of despair because of how things happened, I don't know that anything that has gone on wasn't supposed to happen, church. As I see where we are as a church today, as a community of believers, and and I'm not going to assume every single one is literally in the same page, believing exactly the same thing, but I think we're more focused on the gospel of grace than we've ever been. And I got an amen from Barbara, and she's been here 89 years, so she wins. No, she's been here 69. No, 69, because she's, she, no, she's 21. Never mind. She's 21. I think we're less selfish than we've ever been. I think there's less of a, a, a me-first mentality than we've ever had in a church context. And while we are not perfect, and things are hard because of new challenges, I'm in no way convinced that they're supposed to be perfect this side of glory as we yearn and hope and expect Jesus' return, the glory of God in Jesus Christ lights up the skies and we spend eternity in the presence of our Lord, our Savior, our King. And listen, I love you guys. I do. I love Him more. And I yearn to be in His presence one day, and that one day which lasts for eternity is better than a thousand days elsewhere. And so church... We do not deny that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, we emphasize it over and over. And we don't just say it or tack it on at the end of a sermon. We believe the gospel of grace in which Jesus' lordship is on full display. And that's how we read the Bible. It's how we live our lives. It has superseded our worldview. Because the goal of this life is not to experience fun and accumulate a bunch of stuff and leave an attractive corpse. Good luck. But it is to bring glory to God who took on skin, stepped in our reality, lived the life we could not live, died the death that we should have died, and victoriously rose from the dead. So listen, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. Verse 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. And the Father and Son go hand in hand. Now, John does not include the Holy Spirit in this explanation. And while the reasons I have heard from other preachers seem like kind of lazy excuses, I'll say I don't know why he doesn't include the Holy Spirit here. That's my answer. But I'll also say that the omission of the Holy Spirit does not mean the Spirit is any less important. In fact, he is our anointing. He is the one who resides in us to point us to Jesus. And when we deny the Son, we are denying all of the Trinity for those who claim they are religious but don't see Jesus as the Christ. You're right. You are religious like the Pharisees. And that religion leads to death. But relationship in Christ is an offer of salvation and relationship with God for eternity. So he says in verse 24, as for you, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. Hmm. 
See what you have heard from the beginning, the gospel of grace, Jesus' finished work, his offer of salvation through his merit, not our merit. See to the message that it remains in you, that you abide. Remember, we talked about abiding. There was a tree branch. Abide. Here's what abide means. It doesn't mean try harder. It means rely. Rely on the message of the gospel to see your worth, not in your ability, but to see your worth in Jesus' finished work. Because if you remain in this message, if you abide in this message, if you rely on this message, you, my friend, are more than a friend. You are a brother or sister in the faith. And by doing this, you remain. You abide in the Son and the Father. Verse 25, worship team, come on up. And this is what he promised us, eternal life. According to John 17, 3. Eternal life is this, that they may know you, the one true God, and the Son whom you have sent. That is what our eternal life is. It doesn't start when we're in glory. It starts now when we trust Jesus. And so I'm going to end with a story that coincides with the story I told you about my buddy. It's a guy named Charles Templeton. He lived from 1915 to 2001, and he first professed faith in 1936 and became an evangelist the same year. In 1945, he met Billy Graham, and the two became friends, rooming and ministering together during 1946 evangelistic tour in Europe. But by 1948, Templeton's life, his worldview were beginning, his worldview and Graham's worldview were tending to go in a different direction. Doubts about the Christian faith were solidifying uh, as he planned to enter Princeton Theological Seminary. Less than a decade later, 1957, he would publicly declare that he had become an agnostic. He wrote a book, a memoir in 1996 called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith, and Templeton recounted a conversation with the well-known evangelist Billy Graham. He said, all of our difference came to a head in a discussion which, better than anything I know, explains why Billy and his Uh, why Billy believes what he believes and his phenomenal success as an evangelist. In the course of a conversation, I said, but Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, the biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days, but of uh, over a few thousand years. It had evolved over millions of years. It's not a matter of speculation. It's demonstrable fact. Right. Okay. I don't accept that, Billy said, and there are reputable scholars who don't. Who are these scholars, Templeton said? Men in conservative Christian colleges? Yes, most of them, Billy responded. But that is not the point. I believe the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible. I've discovered something in my ministry. When I take the Bible literally, when I proclaim it as the Word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and say, God says, or the Bible says, the Holy Spirit uses me, there are results. And wiser men than both you and I have been arguing questions like these for centuries. I don't have the time or intellect to examine all sides of the theological dispute, so I've decided once and for all to stop questioning and accept the Bible as God's Word. But Billy... Charles protested. You cannot do that. You don't dare stop thinking about the most important question in life. In fact, if you do, you begin to die. It's intellectual suicide. I don't know about anybody else, he said, but I've decided that that's the path for me, and both of their trajectories had been chosen. 
Now, side note, I don't really love Billy's argument, if I'm honest. It's essentially he believes the Bible because the Bible says it's true. And when he proclaims it, there are results, and all of that's subjective. And circular reasoning, in my opinion, and when I was an atheist, that's what I would say to people. But there is something that I think both Billy perhaps understood, even in his basic faith, that Charles could not understand because of pride. So back to the story. Fifty years later, from this discussion, Lee Strobel had the opportunity to interview Templeton. Lee Strobel is a famous Christian apologist. He's a speaker, but in his earlier life, he was a skeptic of all things Christianity. Lee studied law at Yale, and he was the former legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. Having been an atheist at one time, Strobel had combined his legal and investigative skills in producing a couple of valuable books which argue for the divine origin of the Christian faith, like Case for Faith, Case for Christ. So Strobel has this opportunity to interview Templeton, who had just, in a couple more years after this interview, will die of Alzheimer's. But he's still, at this point, a pretty clear conversation partner for Lee. And in A Case for Faith, Strobel recounts the ending of their wide-ranging discussion. After they had spoken for many minutes, and Charles brought up many of his objections to the Christian faith, don't, lose, don't let me lose you, Lee brought up what almost uh, to Templeton felt like a different subject altogether. Lee then asked Mr. Templeton, how do you assess this Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response he, it evoked, Strobel said. Templeton's body language softened. It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old and dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp and insistent edge, now took on melancholy and a reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He, Jesus, was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that he was a form of greatness? Strobel was taken back. You sound like you really care about him, he said. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 Templeton stuttered, searching for the right word. I know it might sound strange, but I have to say, when it comes to Jesus, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes. And he was tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He, uh, he wasn't uh, a pushover. He was angry. People don't think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. Aha. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Uh, but no, he said slowly. He's the most he stopped and he started again. In my view, he declared, he's the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear him say. 
And if I may put it this way, Templeton said, with a crack in his voice, he said, I miss him. With that, <clears throat> tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head. He looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply. He wiped away a tear. And after a few more awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively and finally quietly but adamantly said, that's enough of that. I'd contend that Mr. Templeton believed a false gospel and rejected that false gospel, but never stopped having affection for Jesus. Because throughout all the religion, throughout all the self-reliance, and that's what religion is, it, masked, it was masked as the gospel. He met and fell in love with the person of Jesus. So here's the question, what happened to Charles Templeton? I do not know. I cannot judge his eternal destiny. But I can point out that a false gospel is what most reject. And when they do, the sad part is that they believe they were rejecting the truth that the Bible conveys and proclaims, and they never really, by faith, receive the good news of grace in the person of Jesus Christ. So, we're done. Church, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. Do not believe in a false gospel. Do not add anything or take away anything from the redemptive work of Christ. You and I, according to John, if we are a part of, his, a part of the church, we know the truth. We have the spirit of truth inside of us. The author of the Bible indwells us. But that doesn't mean we know all things. It doesn't mean you and I don't make mistakes or misinterpret what is being communicated in the Scriptures it means that we, through the work of the Spirit, as we read and apply and obey and discuss with other believers who take his word seriously, have the opportunity to stand on truth and to grow in our knowledge and love for the Son. Let's pray. God, you're good. And I know for... Much of my life, I didn't believe in you at all, and then I started to believe in you, and then I'm not even really convinced I believed in you. I think I believed in a religion. And then I went through some stuff, and then you continued to do a work in me, and you continued to draw me to yourself, and I thank you for that, Lord, and I trust that you've done that for many people in this room. God, thank you you're not done with us yet. Thank you that you're still working in us. Lord, may we be a people that stand on the truth of the redemptive work of Christ on behalf of sinners who cannot save themselves. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.